Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by uh, Pakistan's Ambassador to Foreign Investment, Ali Siddiqui. Ambassador Siddiqui is a diplomat and entrepreneur, having previously served as the Ambassador of Pakistan to the U.S. and Minister of State under former Prime Minister of Pakistan. He founded JS Bank in 2016, which now has over 160 branches in Pakistan. Ambassador Siddiqui, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. You're also a graduate of Cornell. I am, proudly so. Amazing. So it's great. Ambassador Siddiqui, you were briefly ambassador here to the United States. Could you just spend a few minutes talking about what were some of your impressions of being Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. when you were here? Dan, thank you very much for hosting. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, in terms of being Pakistan's ambassador, it's, I would say it's one of the more difficult relationships uh, to manage, only because over the last two decades, that relationship went from being very close in a number of facets, whether, that, whether that's business, education, cooperation, cultural cooperation, and security, mm. to just being security focused. So my impressions were that one, that relationship had become unidimensional, and we had to break away from that, but also address the underlying causes of that uni unidimensionality, and we think we did that. And then two, I think you know Washington's a busy place, and the administration has lots on its plate, uh, Foreign policy is a small minority of its agenda. The vast majority of the agenda is domestic issues. And within the foreign policy space, it's crowded out by the big countries and the big matters and the big issues and the big conflict. So finding time in the administration was a bit of a challenge, but we were there were some champions for the cause and there were some champions who really wanted peace building in, in Afghanistan. I would also say that, you know, we were struck by, you know, President Trump, who pivoted, I have to say, on a longstanding war. Uh, so I think that was that was something quite remarkable to have a political leader who was willing to change position to say, no matter what, we're going to try and build peace. So you now have a new job. You're the ambassador of foreign investment. What is the ambassador of foreign investment for Pakistan? So the job is to work with governments in order to do large-scale investment promotion or deals. Pakistan, you might know, has had some announcements from some certain Middle Eastern countries mm. uh, about large-scale investment programs for their uh, state-owned enterprises as well as their private sector to invest into Pakistan. These countries have been our partners for many years, but these are new investments that they want to make. But not just the Middle East, many of the countries, we have investment programs with them. So I focus on these large investment deals, so to speak, but I do work on some singular investments where we think there's real impact and where to make those single investments successful, we require a whole of government approach. So we need to get many different departments of government to work together to make those inward investments attractive. You know, I know there's a country brand challenge. I would like you to address that for Pakistan, but I can think of it a half dozen countries, I'll just list some, Colombia, Croatia, Peru, that have also in the past had country brand issues and they've been able to change the country brand. I believe that Pakistan's current country brand is not static and eternal. It's a temporary situation, and at some point, the realities of Pakistan are going to catch up with the country brand. The country brand, in some ways, is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Talk about the country brand and how do you, what is it for Pakistan, and how do you talk about it when you talk to investors? And tell us a little bit of some of the facts that might surprise us about the realities of Pakistan. 
If you were to rewind back in history and look at the country brand in the 50s, we were, we were classified as one of the potential Asian tigers. Mm. Uh, so we went from there. I remember that in the 70s, not that I was there, but, right. uh, but, but in the 70s, uh, the largest insurance company in Asia outside of Japan was in Pakistan. It's a really? Pakistan insurance company. In the 60s, the tallest building in Asia outside Japan uh, was in Karachi, in my hometown. So, oh, really? so we went from the brand being that and a very close uh, US partner and ally to the legacy of the Afghan war. And when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan 40 years ago, our brand became the country next to Afghanistan. And I was speaking to some folks and we were saying perhaps the brand should be quote, just Pakistan. <laughs> so we're not branded with, with other countries. Yes. Um, and I think that was, that was the challenge. And today, because of the legacy of the Afghan conflict, particularly post-September 11th, the, the brand is associated or synonymous with you know, security and you know, so some other things related to security. So, so I think we have to break away from it because the story on Pakistan is really different. Uh, you know, we are a country that has culture and music and art and an ancient civilization and literature and, uh, you know, business and opportunities. But I think in all of that, because the U.S. perspective was driven by that, you know, security narrative, U.S. companies and U.S. investors have largely missed this opportunity. They have participated, but only the largest ones have. If you were to look at our telecom sector, there are four companies in the telecom, in the mobile phone sector. Mm. Pakistan is surprising in that all four companies that comprise the entire telecommunications network for wireless are foreign managed. Hmm. I would think you would be hard pressed. Imagine if you came to the US and Sprint, T-Mobile, and AT&T were not these three it companies. Was Telefonica, it was Tel Telenor, and somebody else. Correct, so that's what Pakistan is. We're open, but those four companies are Etisalat of the UAE, China Mobile, Telenor of Norway, and Vion, which is Russia-owned, the old, uh, old Oracom. And those four companies comprise the entire telecommunications network of the sixth largest country in the world. And we don't feel that strategically that's a bad decision. In fact, our consumers are better off because we have the lowest call rates in the world because of this competition. In the same way as the openness to business and the profitability that these companies have, where US companies really haven't participated. I wonder where's AT&T and Verizon and, and so on. But in the same way, there are many different sectors that have a real positive story where we, because the US story on Pakistan is driven by security, that is lost. Um, this, the security st story also results in Pakistan being thought of as somewhat unsafe. There's obviously a travel advisory in place by the State Department that classifies us in a certain category, not the worst, of course, but in, a, in not a great category, and that discourages people from traveling. We've been arguing this out for quite some time, providing data. For example, our large cities, including Karachi, where I'm from, have lower crime rates than many international uh, cities. And even some U.S. cities. And even some U.S. cities. So the data is there. I think we need to change this narrative. We need some support from many actors, including the US government, to change that. But it's surprising that when we have this sort of risky story about security in Pakistan, the data doesn't support that at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So that might surprise you. It surprised me. I, I think it's very strange. We've had from a bureaucratic standpoint, like you said, is the country next to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is one-sixth, at least one-sixth, and maybe as almost as, as small as one-tenth the size of Pakistan. We don't look at, at the United States through the lens of Canada. It's very strange. We have full spectrum relationship with Nigeria, Brazil, and Indonesia, all democracies, all countries that are the same 
population size as Pakistan. And we have security relationships with Nigeria, Brazil, and Indonesia, but we have an economic relationship, a diplomatic relationship, a cultural relationship, a people-to-people relationship, energy, a whole series of other issues other than security. We have somehow failed when it comes to Pakistan, I, and I want to change that. I do think this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but it seems to me most people in Washington that know anything about Pakistan are either spies or generals. And it's a problem. Okay, so Ambassador, there are a series of sectors that surprise me and I think will surprise our listeners about some of the opportunities in Pakistan. Talk about tourism, talk about energy, talk about agriculture, talk about consumer goods. Each of them are quite surprising and quite interesting in their own way. Talk a little bit about them because I don't think when we talk about Pakistan, these never come up and we need to have this conversation. Let's start with energy. If you imagine Turkey as a horizontal country that connects the hydrocarbon energy resources of the Caspian and Russia to the deep markets of Europe, and its geographical position allows for it to do that, it benefits tremendously from transit fees on those pipelines. It benefits tremendously from having competitively priced energy going through it so its own industries can consume some of that energy. Pakistan is in the same position, although we're vertical. So. Uh, you know, we just turned Turkey 90 degrees. Exactly. So if you think about it, the biggest consumers of energy today in the world are China and India. So they're on one side of our borders. On both, on, you, you've shown a border with China, India, Iran, and Afghanistan. It's a hell of a neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting neighborhood. It is. You, you can't know, pick your na- you can pick your friends, can't pick your neighbors. That's right. I mean, uh, one of our former ambassadors joked once that if we could move, we might consider moving. <laughs> uh, but, but I would say that you know we sit through Afghanistan. Uh, next to the resources of the Caspian, uh, countries like Turkmenistan that have enormous energy resources that are very competitively priced. The Middle East oil and and gas has to flow through the Hormuz first, then the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent, going on through the Straits of Malacca and then end up in Asia. Why should that energy not go into Pakistan, be refined, and then be piped? Sure. uh, Which is way more efficient and much cheaper. Uh, and of course, avoids a lots of shipping and congestion yeah. and all got a ge- geopolitical risk. There are pipelines today planned and one nearly financed from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan and Pakistan and possibly into India. The famous TAPI. Absolutely, the famous TAPI. Uh, there's also an electricity corridor that is now being considered in a fiber optic corridor mm. alongside TAPI. Uh, since they're go- that's going to be a corridor for gas pipeline, those corridors would just be built with it. So that would be huge connectivity with Central Asia, cheap energy, it's largely financed, so we we think this project is very, very real. There are other pipeline projects like this. Pakistan itself has about 100,000 kilometers of pipelines in the ground. If you were to take the land area of Pakistan, it's about the size of Texas. So if you take Texas and put 100,000 kilometers of 65,000 miles of pipelines in it, mm. um, and you can imagine the density. So it's a lot of pipeline. It, a lot of pipelines. So we are already set up for this for rights of way. We just to upgrade some infrastructure, put in a few new ones. But we could be the hydrocarbon exchange hub. point hub uh, for that for the, part for, of the world. For, the, for a really energy-hungry neighborhood. Absolutely. And indeed, uh, both Abu Dhabi and Austria in a joint venture with one of our refining companies, as well as uh, the Saudi government, through its uh, energy Sovereign businesses, wealth fund or... uh, yeah, are looking to build very large world-scale $68 billion each refinery projects oh, wow. to supply our market for the part that we are undersupplied as well as export. So I think uh, the energy story is very, very powerful. On tourism, uh, Pakistan 
sits on the Indus civilization, an ancient civilization going back nearly 5,000 years. We have historical sites that look like Pompeii. Uh, we really? Have, oh, and preserved in exactly the same oh, way. Wow. Uh, with relics that are, pro are probably far superior. Really? Um, absolutely. Oh, I got to go see this. Oh, absolutely. And there are museums and, you know, all oh, kinds wow. of things. So it's really remarkable. The city that I'm referring to is called Mohenjo-daro. There are others called Harappa, etc., Taxila. So there's a whole civilization. Then there was the Buddhist civilization mm. with some of the greatest monuments there. The Sikh religion, uh, the holiest shrines happen to be in Pakistan. And you would know that we, we opened up one of those shrines that straddles our border with India and uh, Kartarpur recently. And uh, that shrine alone will boost our tourism numbers by nearly 10%. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's controlled because despite immense demand, we don't want to damage the site. So we only allow a certain number of visitors a day. If you look at this history, the Mughal Empire, the architecture, the palaces, the castles, the skiing in the northern areas, the resorts and the castles in the northern areas. So we have a lot to offer in tourism terms, but it's just not as well developed as it should have been. And it's not as well marketed. So we are embarking on a big uh, effort to market it properly from heli-skiing in the north all the way to the palaces and other tourist sites. So, and, and lots of new development around that. So the tourism story is a, it's a great one. And if we are able to change the narrative to be non-security focused, to have the data that is actually not an unsafe place, uh, or indeed no different from many emerging markets countries that are huge tourist destinations like many countries in Latin America, then tourism would be a huge opportunity uh, in Pakistan. Agriculture. Pakistan, uh, as you know, has about 220 million people. Uh, for most of our agricultural practices, they're archaic. We still use flood irrigation in many parts of the country, but, but for you example. But can, you can feed your whole population. So we managed to feed our entire population. You're food secure. We're food secure. And yet we are a major exporter of rice, wheat, some corn products. And in cotton, we used to have a surplus, but our Downstream manufacturing has grown, so we're on a net basis an importer of cotton, but mm. we, are, we are still the world's third or fourth largest producer of cotton. We actually import an enormous quantity of American cotton, huh. process that into- Thank you very goods. much. <laughs> <laughs> it's welcome, and we're actually looking to grow that dramatically. But, but Ambassador Siddiqui, I mean, I've seen statistics that say that you're at about like a third of your potential as an agriculture power. That's right. So our yields per acre or hectare are low because of our old farming practices. In pockets of excellence where we have had uh, technology and capital, that's changed dramatically. So one great example is the corn industry, an American company called Corn Products that you would know yeah. now called Ingredion from Chicago. They got involved in our corn industry and they have dramatically transformed that industry. They've boosted yields per acre dramatically. They take out value added goods from value-added products from corn, such as starch, et cetera. Uh, and they make an enormous amount of money. They've been doing this for about 20 years. And where we saw that American technology and American capital came in, it transformed it. So I can imagine that as this happens, uh, we your, could, your we could partner with you in other, other agricultural sectors and do the same thing that we've done with corn. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many things we could talk about, Ambassador. I know your time is limited, but one of the elephants in the room is Pakistan's relationship with China. Could you talk a little bit about it? I, I do think what I've said here in Washington is that the deeper partnership with China in the last six years should be a wake-up call for the United States. China sees Pakistan as an opportunity. Why don't we should see Pakistan as an opportunity? That's been my message. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the relationship with China. So um, I think yesterday the Chinese embassy here in Washington was celebrating 40 years yep. of relationship with the US and you would know as well as I do that that relationship was brokered by Pakistan. Um, so you know we were part of that thaw in that relationship 
And today we find ourselves caught in the middle of this great power competition. And um, that's unfortunate because Pakistan's uh, relationship with China, while very close, does not mean that in any way the U.S. is excluded or uh, the U.S. is not welcome. In fact, if anything, our relationship with the U.S. is older and closer uh, historically. I think CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, in the last six years, it's been a big investment program, as you know, part of Belt and Road. And that program is somewhat misunderstood around the world. And perhaps we need, we need to do a better job as Pakistan to market the, the facts. And the facts are that you know most of the data on CPEC is public. The vast majority of, of CPEC is power plants. That data is on the website of our power regulator. It's completely transparent. You know, what and what's the, the what's the web regulator's name? Someone wants to go look it up. Sure, it's NEPRA, the National Electric Power Regulatory Authority. So if they look look up for NEPRA, yeah. uh, Pakistan, it'll, it'll show, show up. up. And every tariff award of every power plant, every loan, every term is is on there. In fact, you might be surprised to know that you know even though those projects are backed by China and funded through Chinese uh, export credit guarantees. In certain cases, we're using Chinese money. China has permitted us to buy GE machinery. Really? Because those turbines from GE are more efficient that we were able to make a convincing argument. I, it's amazing. I, I think you would be hard pressed to find a country in the world whose Exim Bank has funded is financing someone American else's, goods. Someone else's goods. Yeah, it's wild. So, so, so that has happened, although it's small, but that has happened and that's quite unique. And I think uh, the CPEC program is transparent. But CPEC does not mean a monopoly by one country on our infrastructure. In parallel to CPEC, in the last six years, if CPEC is 11,000 megawatts or so of power, we've built 8,000 megawatts by our government, mostly GE and US machinery. Three quarters of that is US machinery, funded outside of China, funded by our government uh, and other funding partners. But the US has significant market share in our infrastructure play. It's just lost because the, uh, in terms of narrative because the story is about China, not, this, not a story about infrastructure in Pakistan. And companies like GE, companies like Exxon, they're benefiting from the infrastructure development. Uh, on Exxon, I, I may mention that a few weeks ago, we authorized our third and fourth uh, liquefaction, Very liquefied like natural gas uh, receiving exciting. terminals. One of those projects has Exxon as a partner. Uh, the last one has Mitsubishi as the, as the developer. So, so American companies have a real opportunity. opportunity. And I think uh, it should, China should be seen in the context of, you know, here's a country profiting from this opportunity. The opportunity, even while China has been doing this, has been received by U.S. companies like GE, et cetera. But if the U.S. were to take a proactive approach, there's a huge potential of profit and partnership as there used to be. I have one other question for you. And I was in Pakistan last week, and you talked about Tapi. I want to just talk about Central Asia briefly. It seems to me, someone said made an interesting comment, said in some ways, we Pakistanis are sort of kind of Central Asians. That was sort of an interesting insight. I don't know if you can agree or not agree. Can you talk about how Pakistan sees its partnership with Central Asia? I mean, these are enormous energy pools of energy. They absolutely need to have both Afghanistan and Pakistan as sort of hubs to, to feed your other energy-hungry neighbors, but also on share on to the rest of the world. I mean, they, they're landlocked. Talk a little bit of how you think about Central Asia, because it seems to me, if I think about Pakistan's future, some of it is looking northwards to Central Asia. Absolutely. I mean, so we today buy some small quantities of goods, cotton, et cetera, from Central yeah. Asia. And, you know, TAPI, the pipeline from Turkmenistan, is, sort is, of one is the promising. one first yep. big initiative. Yep. But the trade should be two-way. Our goods are competitive yes. in those markets. And I think post-peace in Afghanistan, we will have a corridor to take our goods up. 
I also think that there are other projects of infrastructure, CARIC, which is- uh, Is electricity? Uh, uh, CARIC is uh, the regional road connectivity oh. program from the Asian Development huh. Bank, which will connect these countries to Pakistan That's and to other countries in the, in the market. So I think because they're landlocked, there's a connectivity problem. And because there was conflict in Afghanistan or, or is conflict yeah. in Afghanistan, hopefully soon it will, it will, it will reach a peace. But because of that, it was disconnected. But all that is changing very rapidly. The the pieces on the chessboard are moving, and I think going north is a huge opportunity for us and for those countries to get access to our ports. Just your parting thoughts, uh, one minute. You, what's your message to American business? Um, I think uh, U.S. companies have to think about who the global companies are that are doing business in Pakistan. If they look at the telecom sector, and in that sector, there are four global foreign companies, but none of them are American companies when American companies are the largest in the world. And We're almost, leaving and opportunity are, on the table. They're missing out. So I think that's my message, to take Pakistan seriously, to take a consuming market of 220 million people who, despite going through financial difficulty and IMF program, are checking out 2% growth. Now, 2% and has a, gro- and a large middle, income, middle class. Absolutely, a growing middle class. And 2% growth is not a great result for an emerging market country. We need 6 7 8%. Yeah, yeah. But it is still growth in a while going through an IMF program. So that tells you something about the resilience of the economy. And indeed, our indicators are up in the last couple of months from home remittances from overseas to export numbers because we have taken some good financial, fiscally conservative decisions. So so they're starting to bear fruit. So I think it's a great time. Um, there is peace building in the region and US companies need to take a serious look. I am convinced that once they come and interface with us, they will see profits for themselves. Ambassador, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Dan. It's a privilege. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 